Now take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to begin this section, uh, verses 1 through 12, but today we're looking at verses 1 to 5, just to get in uh, to this uh, pretty uh, well-known uh, and, uh, and difficult text. Uh, with that as, as maybe a, a word of introduction, Sam Storms says that the difficulty of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is nothing short of legendary. Uh, another uh, commentator, Leon Morris, says, this passage is probably the most obscure and difficult in the whole of the Pauline writings. And many gaps in our knowledge have given rise to extravagant speculations. Well, I, I'm probably not setting your expectations very high, uh, but you need to know what we're getting into. Uh, we're going to begin talking about things like eschatology and the man of lawlessness and lots of controversial issues in the modern church. And uh, the reality is there are a lot of unanswered questions in this passage. And I think that means that we have a few options as to how we handle uh, these verses, this chapter. Uh, we can uh, perhaps rush straight ahead and make confident assertions about things that we're not really sure about. That's one way to do it. Uh, another is to throw up our hands and say, well, we can't know much, so let's just skip to verse 13. Uh, let's just get past all that stuff. But what I hope that we will want to do and what we'll be doing together uh, and just beginning today is, is to go slowly uh, and to think critically about what has the Lord told us and what has he chosen not to tell us. What I want us to do today, and, and honestly, we're not going to get very far at all into the controversial issues in this passage. We'll come back next week, and we'll start into the controversial stuff. But today, I really just want us to think about how do we think about a difficult passage like this? That's sort of the setup. What are we doing today? What is this passage here for? Not so much just what it says. So today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to be reading in verses 1 to 5. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord and pray. Gracious Father, we profess that we need your help. We need your wisdom. This is your word. You've inspired it by your Holy Spirit. Uh, you have given it to us perfectly and preserved it for us. Uh, and we need your wisdom, O oh Lord, by that same Spirit. Help us to understand it. Help us to understand our Savior through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're now God's word as we find it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. 
Are you ready? That's, that's a question that we ask in our home at least four times every time our family steps out the door together. Are you ready? It seems like everywhere we go, we're always checking and rechecking. Have you brushed your teeth? Have you combed your hair? Is your jacket zipped? Do you have the things that you need? Are you ready? And once I confirm that I am indeed ready, my wife asks those same questions of our children. <laughs> Even if you're not stepping out with a family, with your kids, you probably have your own personal pre-flight checklist, right? You, you pat the pockets. Uh, keys, phone, wallet, good, ready to go. Uh, and through force of habit, whatever your uh, routine is, you follow that routine because you know the feeling of turning around and pushing that door closed and realizing that it's locked and the keys are still inside. You don't like that feeling of being left out. You don't like that feeling of being unprepared. And so you always want to make sure that you are ready. Spiritually speaking, this is the question that all people must ask and answer before the curtain falls on human history. And before the time for such questions comes to an end. The world is ending, you know. The day of the Lord is hastening on. It is nearer now than when we first believed, Scripture tells us. Jesus Christ is coming back, perhaps tomorrow, perhaps today, like a thief in the night, like a master returning to find some servants working and some servants sleeping, Jesus Christ is coming and his people will be gathered. And the great question that must be asked before that day is, are you ready? Now because that question is so foundational, really because that question is so thoroughly biblical, we also need to understand how that question can sometimes be abused or mishandled. So the scriptures show us the way that it's, it's possible for spiritual preparation for that day to, to lapse into spiritual anxiety about that day. The Apostle Paul was aware that even God's people could be so captivated by, by the horror of being locked out of God's kingdom that they forgot to remember to look forward to the joy of being brought in. It seems to be precisely the issue that our text is addressing today. There were false teachers, we find, going around spreading their false teaching. They were exploiting the expectations of the Christian community, and they were spouting their unsettling doctrines, verse 2 tells us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. It was already here. Maybe that it was already gone. This wasn't the first time that Paul encountered a heresy like this. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18, he warned about two teachers, men named Hymenaeus and Philetus. He says there that they have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now, in both cases, when he wrote to Timothy and Ephesus, and when he wrote uh, to the Thessalonians, that kind of teaching had the same result. In Ephesus, he says that those teachers were upsetting the faith of some. And here in Thessalonica, he worried that some would be shaken in mind and alarmed. In other words, Paul worried that the church might believe the lie. He was concerned that when they considered the day of Christ, they might conclude that they were not ready. 
that they had been locked out. I know that when we speak of, of things like eschatology and the day of the Lord and the last coming and all that sort of thing, there are some believers in any church who have a bent toward that anxiety. Some believers who, who never make it to what we call gospel assurance, who never come to an end of asking that question of themselves, am I ready? Am I ready yet? But in our text today, Paul is not writing to ask that question. It's a question we need to ask, but, but not here. Paul's not writing to ask that question. Paul's writing to give an answer, actually. Paul's writing here for comfort. You see it if you look down to his, his conclusion in verses 16 and 17. It's a benediction of sorts. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, verse 17, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. There were people giving doctrine that was upsetting the faith, alarming them and shaking them. Paul says, we want you to be comforted. We want you to be established. That's why he's writing. He's writing to pull these Christians back from a false teaching that left them shaken. He's not writing to ask if they are ready. He's writing to tell them that if they are in Christ Jesus, they are already ready. The message is true for us, too. If you are trusting in Jesus, you will not be left out. You will not be forgotten. In Christ Jesus, you are ready for the future, even if you don't know what the future looks like. Today, I, I want to help you hopefully find some comfort in the faith that the Lord has given the church for the future. In unpacking these verses, I, I want us to see first the foundation of our faith, secondly, the conviction of our faith, and thirdly, the humility of our faith. Foundation, conviction, humility. We begin with the foundation of our faith, and we begin by noticing that we've already seen that this chapter is primarily concerned with correcting false teaching. In verse 1, Paul says the error has to do with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. No wonder some people were alarmed. This is not a minor matter in Christian theology. This is not some, some fringe secondary doctrine about which Christians may agree to disagree. This touches on the very heart and soul of the hope that's proclaimed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ is coming back. We will be gathered. There is something to look forward to in Jesus. But now there are teachers going around Thessalonica saying, no, there's not. There's not really anything left to look forward to. There's not really anything left to hope for, at least not in the way that you had been taught. Because there's a word going around, verse 2, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. We don't have all the details, but most commentators uh, suggest that probably one of two things is being taught with regard to the day of the Lord. Perhaps there were teachers who were suggesting that the day of the Lord had already come in some unseen way that nobody had noticed. Uh, that is, that the day of the Lord had come spiritually, and spiritually only, that, that Jesus had returned unseen, disembodied, and they were saying that, you know, the real hope of salvation is really just about participating in Christ's unseen, immaterial, spiritualized, metaphorical kingdom. That's one option. 
another option is that there were teachers saying, well, it's going to come in exactly the way that Paul said, but actually it's already starting. It's already here. They'd admit, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the second coming will have physical realities. It will come with eternal salvation and eternal judgment. Uh, but perhaps that day of division was already in progress. That Jesus was already delivering his chosen people from the sorrows of the world. And if that was true, that was a problem. Because you remember from chapter 1 that the Thessalonians were a suffering church. And if Jesus was already coming back and already judging and giving relief, then it might have meant that they were left out. Now, where we stand, so far removed from, from Paul's touch point with the church, honestly, it's hard to tell which of these is the better option. Which explanation really uh, tells us what was going on here? Were they teaching that Christ had come back differently, or were they teaching that he had come back for different people? It's hard to tell. But between those two options, I think we also catch a glimpse into how false teaching often works, how it takes hold of our hearts. You see, on the one hand, false teaching sometimes works by downplaying the clear truth of what God has revealed. False teaching sometimes tries to soften the hard edges of Scripture. It tries to make the Bible more acceptable to our standards. That was the, the spiritualizing approach. You know, of course, resurrections are hard to believe. Christ coming on the clouds, that seems a bit far-fetched for our modern, sophisticated vantage point. And actually, it would have seemed equally far-fetched for the first century vantage point. And so false teaching steps in to make things a bit more believable. No resurrections, no judgment, no, no eternal salvation, just metaphor. Just, just spirituality, just higher consciousness, just enlightenment. That's all it is. And it downplays God's truth. But on the other hand, false teachings sometimes go wrong by, by taking real truth and painting it with a very broad brush. You realize that there is a kind of false teaching in, in Christianity that masquerades as a kind of biblical seriousness. Right, that, that, that tries to appear faithful, particularly in the way that it handles categories of holiness and punishment in stark black and white. It's a lot like the question that Jesus' disciples asked, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because on the surface, it seems like that question takes sin and judgment, retribution and punishment very seriously. But actually, it gets everything upside down. It gets everything upside down because our Christian faith is meant to evaluate the world around us by what God has revealed, not in the other direction. And that's what this kind of false teaching often does. It tries to do the opposite. It tries to explain God's character or what God might be up to based on what we can see. And you've probably encountered it. It's the false teaching that says, you know, if a Christian is suffering, you can conclude that God is displeased with them. It's the false teaching that says if a Christian has been diagnosed with cancer, well, then they must have some unconfessed sin. They're probably under a spiritual attack, you know. It was the explanation for the heresy in Thessalonica. If the church is suffering, then it ought to be clear that the judgment has come. 
because their affliction was proof that the day of the Lord left these people outside. Those are some of the ways that false teaching works. And there is this false teaching going around. There is someone claiming that the day of the Lord has already come. And it brings us, I think, to another thing that we need to understand about the way that false teaching works. And that is that most often false doctrine is the kind of thing that comes from inside the church. It would be nice to think that it normally starts out there, that it infiltrates somehow, but it normally starts inside, or at least we could say that it it starts with the appearance of of being inside. Take a look again at verse 2. Do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. False teaching takes hold in the church because it claims the appearance of authority. It sneaks into the church by degrees. It grows up in the church through half-truths. By one small step away from God's word after another small step away from God's word. Think for a moment with me. How do you think the Enlightenment would have affected the Christian world in the Western culture if 300 years ago all of the influential uh, thinkers in the world were saying things like, you know, what we really want is a world in which human intellect is our God. What we really want is a world in which the Bible can be disregarded. You know, what we're really working for is a world in which Christianity seems ridiculous to any thinking person. That's not where the Enlightenment took hold, you know. The Enlightenment grew up in the church. It began through men like John Locke arguing in 1695 for what he called the reasonableness of Christianity as delivered in the scriptures. It was his argument, on the one hand, that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the Son of God. Good. And his argument, on the other hand, uh, that any rational person can come to that same conclusion by the power of their own reason. Not good. Half-truths. Small deviations and little steps away from the foundation of God's word. Fast forward several centuries in the English-speaking world, and we are all still gaga over human reason while we have abandoned the Savior that Locke said our reason would reveal. And it started in the church. We could cite other examples, right? We can multiply these things if we want to. It's the idea today that you can't speak about certain sins in public too loudly because, you know, after all, we want the church to be missional. We want the gospel to be unoffensive. It's the way that word evangelism often takes a backseat to social engagement in many churches because, of course, we want our neighbors to see that, that Christian, uh, Christians and Christianity actually provides some tangible good in the world. As though the gospel of Jesus Christ were not a tangible good for our neighbors. Over and over again, we could cite the examples. The basic principle is the same. Most often, false teaching takes hold in the church from inside. Small compromises masquerading as faithfulness. Paul says it was a spirit or a word or a letter as though from them. It was wolf in sheep's clothing. 
was a false teaching that left God's people shaken and alarmed and unstable in their faith for the future. But there's an answer for those sorts of things, you know. And the answer for false teaching, no matter where it comes from, no matter how it takes hold, the answer is for God's people to stand firm on the foundation of God's word. This is where this whole very long first point is headed. That God has given us a foundation for our faith. He has given us a bedrock truth that will never shift under our feet. He has given us his word. He has inspired it by his spirit. He has had it written down by his apostles. He has preserved his word and confirmed his word. And he's given us his word in the scriptures so that we would have a guide in every spiritual decision point. God has given us a word that is powerful. Perfectly able to make us wise unto salvation, says the Bible. He has given us in his word a word that is sufficient. It doesn't matter what the cultural moment is that the church on earth is facing. It's sufficient that we would be ready for every good work, the Bible says. There's a foundation for our faith in the Word of God. Look down to verse 15. Verse 15, Paul gives us an alternative to being shaken by false teaching. He says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. We're going to come back to this in the coming weeks, but what Paul is doing is calling us back to the apostolic witness. He's not concerned that we would listen to Paul as opposed to some other teacher because Paul's a better teacher than the other teachers. He's not concerned that we would hear his word versus somebody else's word. He wants to call the church to stand firm on the foundation of the word of God delivered through the apostolic witness. Greg Bonson puts it this way. He says, the Christian faith is based upon God's own self... Excuse me. The Christian faith is based on God's own self-revelation, not the conflicting opinions of men. What does he mean by that? Well, he means what Paul already wrote to the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the words of men, but what it really is, the word of God. Paul doesn't have some big ego. right? He, he doesn't just want you to listen to him because he's Paul, the apostle. He wants you to listen to God. He wants the church to have faith that is unshaken. He wants us to stand firm on what our maker has told us about himself and about our hope in him. He wants our faith to stand firm on the foundation of God's word. Because when we stand on that foundation, we become people of conviction. This brings us to our second point. The conviction of our faith. Take a look back at verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. In verse 2, Paul set things up as as a matter of being shaken or alarmed. Verse 3, he's talking about being deceived. Maybe the difference isn't very great, but the shift in language, I think, is insightful. To be shaken or or to be alarmed is is to be taken unaware. 
the word for shaken is often used in other Greek texts of this time to speak of what happens when an earthquake comes. Seemingly random, without warning, devastating everything in its path, without discernment. Everything's caught up and, and everything is shaken, but deception, on the other hand, well, that carries the idea of a victim. To be deceived is to be taken advantage of. To be deceived is to let down your guard when your guard should be up. And the kind of person who's easily fooled we call a sap. And the kind of person who does the deceiving we call a crook and a con man. Six times in the New Testament, Paul warns the church not to be deceived. And every single time he's telling them about something that they should already be aware of. Something they should know. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. It's the kind of thing that ought to be common sense. It's the kind of thing that they shouldn't need to be told. So it is here in 2 Thessalonians. Let no one deceive you in any way. Michael Martin says that the faithful should be difficult to sway from the apostolic faith. And the word that we use for that kind of Christian character is conviction. It used to be regarded as a universal good of virtue. Conviction is faith that doesn't really mind being tested. Conviction is a spiritual determination to hold on to God's truth, even when that truth is unpopular. Even when that truth is being challenged. Conviction is, is the sort of thing that only comes about when the word of God has become the foundation of your faith. And when we think of, of Christians with conviction, I bet the first thing that comes to our mind uh, is a social issue or two. Right? We, we think of conviction in terms of those who stand for biblical morality in the middle of a culture gone crazy. And that's biblical conviction, and that's, that's right, and that's good. But we also ought to have a biblical conviction about our salvation, about what God has told us he is planning for his people in Christ Jesus. In fact, this should have been the first safeguard against the false teaching that was in the Thessalonian church. Whatever else could be said about the day of the Lord and, and the man of lawlessness and all the end time scenarios that Christians love to debate, the gospel of Jesus Christ ought to have prepared them to be unmoved by these things. It ought to have prepared them that when somebody came with these foolish notions that the day of Christ could have come and gone and the church would be left out, they should have been able to shut it down without a second thought. They should have been people of spiritual conviction about what God has told them concerning their salvation in Jesus Christ. After all, hadn't they been told the same gospel that Paul shared with the Ephesians? That by grace you have been saved through faith. But why? So that in the coming ages God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what the gospel tells us. He's not done with us. There's something else that's still coming, that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches. Hadn't they been told that? Hadn't they heard how when Christ Jesus was raised, he appeared to more than 500 disciples at one time? Hadn't they heard that how on the day of his ascension, the angels stood by with the, the apostles and said, you know, he's coming back the same way you saw him go. 
Hadn't they heard those things? Hadn't they believed, dear Christian, the same thing that you have believed? That whoever comes to him shall never hunger. That whoever believes in him shall never thirst. Hadn't they believed that all those whom the Father has given to the Son will surely come to him? And that whoever comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. I hope you don't misunderstand me. I hope you don't view this line of thinking over the last two or three minutes as a sort of rabbit trail, some way to get Jesus into a text where his name is not mentioned. This is not incidental to the things that Paul is dealing with in the church in Thessalonica. The problem that was facing the church is that they were being taken in by a teaching they should never have given the time of day to. If they only remembered the promises of the gospel, they should have been able to shut it down. They were being deceived and taken in by something they should have rejected as a theological impossibility. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15. The Lord says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even if these may forget, yet I will not forget you. He says, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. What does it mean? It means that when some false teachers came spouting this nonsense about the, how, how the church might have believed in Jesus and yet still missed out on salvation, these believers should have been able to say, Not a chance. No way. They should have had the conviction in the salvation of the Lord to hold on to hope, even when others said that hope was already gone. Dear Christians, it means that you should have the conviction to do the same. You know that the question and the false teaching comes in a different form normally now than it did then. In the first century, the lie said that maybe Jesus has already come. In the 21st century, the lie says, maybe he's not coming at all. Nowadays, the lie is, are you people still waiting? And if so, for what? For the, the clouds to open. For the trumpet to sound. For, for angels and heavenly armies and eternal judgment and all that stuff that nobody even believes in anymore. Are you still waiting for that stuff? How foolish they would say. But if your faith is built on the foundation of God's word, it means that you can have conviction. It means you can keep on hoping even when hope is unpopular. It means that you can have conviction enough to believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not height nor depth, not angels nor rulers, not powers nor things to come, not even 2,000 years of waiting for it. And actually, if by the grace of the Holy Spirit you find that you've been given conviction like that, right, conviction to believe what the world finds unbelievable, if the Holy Spirit has given you conviction like that, you might find that he also produces in you something that we typically do not think of in the same categories as conviction, and that is humility. It brings us to our third point, the humility of our faith. Now here we are. Nearing the end of our time in this passage, here we are in the third, uh, our final point of three, and you who are paying attention will notice that I have kept my word so far. 
We have not even touched on the controversial stuff. We haven't even gotten into it. No temple of God, no man of lawlessness, no, no discussion of what's restraining him now or how long or, or when he'll be uh, released, and that's by design. It's by design that we, we've taken this, this route into this passage because before we are ready to handle all of those details and all of those discussions, we need two very different but related kinds of scriptural conviction. Are you ready? We need, first off, on the one hand, the conviction that believes without doubting all that the Lord has said about our salvation. We need faith that God's word is true. We need conviction that his promises can be trusted. But on the other hand, we need the kind of conviction that believes the Lord even when he has chosen not to tell us all the things we might want to know. Do me a favor and, and, and jump past all the man of lawlessness stuff and look with me at verse 5 again. It's a strange verse to end our reading today. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? The reality is that the people who received this letter and read it the first time would have answered that question very differently than you can answer that question. Your answer, like mine, is no. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I wasn't there. I didn't hear it. Do you realize that we're listening to one half of a follow-up conversation that was a much longer conversation between two parties? And we weren't there to hear all the details, and Paul doesn't give us all the details here. And so, no, we, we haven't heard what he told them. We didn't hear firsthand. We never had the chance to pepper Paul with our questions and to ask our explanations and to generally get more information than what little we have in this puzzling text in 2 Thessalonians. And that means that we have a difficulty with this text that the Thessalonians did not have with this text. The difficulty is that we don't know everything they knew. And we will probably never know everything that we wish we could ask. And the question we have to wrestle with is this. Do we trust the Lord with the future of our faith, even when he hasn't told us how it will play out? Can we have the conviction to, to hold on like a pit bull to those things that God has clearly revealed about what he will do for those who trust in him? And at the same time, hold with an open hand all of those questions that God has chosen not to give us an answer to. Again, I hope you don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that those questions aren't worth asking. And I'm not suggesting that we, we skip to verse 13. And next week, uh, we're going to come back. We're going to start picking up through these controversial issues because there's encouragement for God's church, even in all of those unknown things. And in fact, before we get there, I hope that we can agree that there are things in this passage that are abundantly clear. Things that we have no need to, to debate or to question with one another or disbelieve. Let's look at them quickly. Verses 3 and 4, Paul is telling us that before Jesus returns to gather his elect, two things will happen. He says, first, that there will be a widespread rebellion. That's the word in the ESV. The word is apostasy. It means a religious turning away. 
most likely it indicates that many of those who have publicly professed to believe in the name of Jesus Christ will no longer follow him. They will be separated from the visible church. There will be a widespread rebellion, Paul tells us. Second, he says, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Now, we don't know everything we want to know about the man of lawlessness, but we know his character, we know his actions, and we know his destiny. His character is that he is a real person. He will be a human individual, an enemy of God, who will appear on the world scene before the time of the end. As the man of lawlessness, he will be the personification of everything that rejects the lordship of Jesus. He will be, we might call him, the chief rebel that leads a rebellion against Christ's kingdom. He may be the one who incites that rebellion that verse 3 talks about. We don't know. But we do know that his most blasphemous act will be an attempt to take the place of God. That he will demand to be worshipped in the place of the Lord himself. And as the son of perdition, as that language indicates, he will suffer what verse, uh, chapter 1 told us, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Of this we are sure. So whatever our millennial view, whatever, uh, whatever our eschatological inclination, we should be agreed. Christ is coming back. Before that, the apostasy and the man of lawlessness. Beyond that lies speculation. Beyond that lies theories. And in fact, beyond that lies a few pretty good guesses. But the point for us today, before we get to all that next week, is can we trust the Lord who has not revealed what we do not need to know. Parents often have to deal that way with their children because they care for them. There's time to sit with the inquisitive child. There is time to answer that endless string of whys. There's time to explain how things work in the world that God has made. There is also time for the careful parent to say, you know, I'm not going to tell you that. I can't share that with you. And I know that you don't have the answer, but what you need to know is that you can trust me. That's what the Lord is doing with this passage. That's what the Lord has done for us in his word. Deuteronomy chapter 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And the truth is that this issue is going to come home for all of us at some point eventually. And I'm not talking about your eschatology. I'm talking about your experience. I'm talking about the fact that at some point, before too long perhaps, we'll all face some kind of affliction, some kind of suffering that will remain unanswered, and we will be tempted to say, why this? Why now? Why me? And into the gap left by those unanswered questions, any number of false teachers would love to come in and say, let me tell you what God is doing based on what you're experiencing. And we must not be deceived. Because real faith knows how to stand on God's foundation in his word. Real faith has conviction in what God has told us, and real faith has hum humility for those things that he has not. With God's help, that's exactly what we're going to apply when we come back to this text next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
gracious Father, we thank you for this word. We confess that it is true. And though we confess that there are many parts that we may not understand, yet you are good. You lead your people to yourself. We pray that you would give us humility to walk with you and to trust what you have told us and to believe in the Lord Jesus, who's certainly coming back to gather his people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.